Okay, good evening everybody and uh, welcome to the LSE. Uh, my name is uh, Thomas Sampson from the Department of Economics. I'm going to be uh, chairing the event this evening. Um, so it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, to you this evening uh, Michael O'Sullivan. Uh, Michael has had a, you know, a very impressive, varied and kind of high-flying uh, career spanning academia, the uh, private sector um, and also uh, the public sector. He started, started life in, in academia teaching finance at both uh, Princeton and, and Oxford uh, before moving into the financial industry, spending a long time at uh, Credit Suisse where he was the chief investment officer um, and recently has also spent five years as an independent member of Ireland's uh, National Economic and Social Council. So, I mean, I think this is a, a set of, of, of experiences and, and, a, and a background that makes him ideally suited to speak about the issues that he, he's going to be addressing tonight. He's going to be talking to us about, about his book, The, the Leveling, What's Next After Globalization. Obviously, we, at, we are at a time where kind of everyone is, is asking, you know, something has changed. We see this rise of populism, new protectionism. What does that mean for the, the global economy? And uh, Michael is going to give us uh, his take on that uh, this evening. Um, a couple of sort of logistical announcements before we begin. If you are on Twitter, we have a hashtag. It is uh, LSE uh, Leveling. So uh, tweet out your reaction using hashtag LSE Leveling. Please do have your phones on silent. Um, also, tonight's event is being uh, recorded and will be uh, released as a uh, podcast. So just you know, be aware that we are being recorded um, this evening. Uh, so Michael is going to talk for about half an hour, 40 minutes. We'll then open the floor for questions. And after the talk, uh, Michael will be available to sign copies of his book outside, um, outside the back uh, right door, as I'm looking at it, of the uh, theatre. So there'll be an opportunity to purchase books after the event. Okay? But if you could now uh, join me in uh, welcoming uh, Michael, and we look forward to you. Okay, good evening. Thank you all uh, for, for coming along tonight. Uh, I'm going to start with the, uh, the part of the book, uh, the one part of the book I, I'm not responsible for, and it's probably the best part of the book, which is the cover. Um, because when you see this, I think you, you get the story. This is how many people uh, feel the world is. Uh, in, in the developed world, we're in a, a political recession. Um, in economies and financial markets, people think we're going into a, an economic recession. Uh, and there is a great sense of chaos uh, and disorder uh, and change that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. Um, I gave my publisher the, the main text for the book uh, about a year ago. And even a year ago, um, if I put the story to you, you probably would have agreed. But since then, almost every day, we're getting a reminder that the, the edifice of uh, globalization and everything that's, that's car been carried with it, uh, be it liberal democracy, uh, be it the spread of trade, the spread of ideas, the flow of people, uh, that that is being, uh, is being checked. Uh, and I think we're at a moment in history that is akin to uh, the fall uh, of communism in terms of the, uh, the magnitude of change. Uh, and the kind of paradigm shift that we're going to go, uh, to go through. So what the book is all about is what happens to this 
deflated uh, globe. Uh, there's lots of people out there who are uh, probably better at me uh, than selling books, and they have very dramatic and they've got very negative prognosis that we're going back to the 1920s, uh, the rise of fascism, or we're going back to the, the 1930s, we're going to see a deep economic crisis. Uh, and I've actually learned in the last couple of weeks that if you really want to sell books, you have to be dramatically uh, negative or dramatically positive. Uh, so I'll try and stretch the, the truth uh, just a little bit and see who, who buys the, the books later on. Uh, what this book is all about is trying to reflate uh, the world and the world order and just to try and give a roadmap as to what might happen next and propose ideas uh, in economics, in finance, in politics uh, and in geopolitics uh, that will make for a, a more stable and a more satisfying uh, world order. And all of these things uh, are, are intertwined. I spent this week, uh, Monday, Tuesday, at a financial event, yesterday in Ireland at a political event uh, here in the, the London School of Economics. Um, and all of these things are, are intertwined. Um, you know, in Britain, I think one of the reasons we have Brexit uh, is linked to austerity. Across the world, I think we're still living in the echo uh, of the, the global uh, financial crisis and all of its consequences uh, for society and for, for politics. So what I'll do in the next maybe half an hour uh, is tell the story uh, of uh, the book and give you some ideas and hopefully give you some ideas uh, for a debate uh, and for, uh, for questions uh, later on. Um, so the book, the second part, the second chapter in the book uh, is entitled uh, The Tide uh, Goes Out. There's a famous investor called Warren Buffett um, and he, 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 he spawned the phrase that uh, it's only when the tide goes out you can see who's swimming naked. Um, I, and I think in terms of many of the side effects of uh, globalization, we're now, uh, the tide is going out and those side effects are more uh, and more uh, apparent. Uh, there is a, a, a big and relevant debate uh, about income inequality. Uh, if you look at wealth inequality, which many people don't look at because the data is hard to get, wealth inequality in many countries is more uh, pronounced than it has been since the, the 1920s and 1930s. Um, if you look at income growth, in many developed countries in the world today, Italy, the States, 70 to, 70 to 80 percent of people haven't seen a, a, a rise in real or inflation-adjusted income. Uh, and when that happens, you begin to lose hope in the future. And you begin to think, well, the only way I'm going to change my situation uh, is to make a, a radical political choice. Um, if any of you have read the book by J.D. Vance called Hillbilly Elegy, it's a great book. Um, and this is someone who grew up in sort of what's traditionally described as kind of white trash America and the Appalachians. And he tells the story of his, his class um, who would normally have been democratic uh, voters, uh, but because they've become so disillusioned with the body politic, they've all shifted to Trump. And we're, say, we're seeing similar things uh, in the UK, for example, in Italy, uh, in Mexico, uh, and in other parts of the, the world. Uh, and there's lots of other things that are beginning to, uh, to change. Uh, it's a long time since I gave a lecture uh, in a university um, and uh, certainly when I was in the old days when I was lecturing people didn't have mobile phones, they weren't uh, tapping on their, their, their computers. It's fine to do so, so by the way. Um, but, but the way our bodies are changing, you, know, you go out in the street, people are hunched over their mobile phones. People's body shapes are changing. Obesity in some countries like Mexico is 40%. Uh, percent. 
uh, other behaviors are changing. In Japan, uh, something like 40% of young people between the age of 18 and 35 are, are virgins. So lots of strange things are happening uh, to us as humans. Uh, and my sense is that many people have just had enough of change. Um, the, the, the Canadian Prime, um, Prime Minister, um, Justin Trudeau at Davos, said that uh, things have uh, never been changing as fast, but they will never be as slow. Um, and I, I think many, that's a great statement for people at Davos, and the Davosians love that kind of thing. But for most people, they would disagree. And I think most people have just had too much uh, change and chaos uh, in their lives. And again, they're beginning to vote uh, and act uh, accordingly. And you see this in politics. You know, voter volatility uh, has never been as high. Voter apathy in many countries uh, has never been as high uh, as well. Uh, and it produces a kind of a, a sense of, uh, of, of chaos and a sense of, of disorder. Um, and people are just obsessed with the catalyst. I mean, I find people are overly obsessed with Boris, with Brexit, uh, with uh, Trump. Um, and we will not move forward until thinking people, and, and pretty much everyone else, puts these personalities be it to the back of their minds and actually focuses uh, on some of the underlying problems in you know, the UK, the US, Italy, or, or wherever. Uh, and then the next part of the book is trying to kind of map this change. Um, certainly those of you who work in, in financial markets or in economics will have heard the phrase uh, paradigm shift. And it may have been coined, um, I think Karl Popper, when he was here at the LSC, he worked a, l a lot on the, on the topic of, on the concept of paradigm shift. It's a massively, a massively overused uh, concept. It was coined by a guy called Thomas Kuhn, who was an American scientist. And he coined it to describe the process by which new uh, scientific ideas uh, are, are discovered. So old ones are broken down, they're rejected. Uh, you go through a period of, of argument uh, and experimentation until you have the, the new paradigm. Um, so I don't want to overuse the paradigm shift phrase, but I think that's what's going on, is that what has driven the world for the last 30 years, globalization, is now being uh, rejected in some cases rationally, because people are fed up with its, with its side effects, uh, in other ways uh, unkindly by Trump, by whoever else who see it as a very easy thing to, to attack and something that's politically uh, viable in terms of the political return it gives, uh, it gives him. Uh, and of course the problem with globalization, there's no ministry of globalization, it's this kind of nebulous thing that's, uh, that's out there. I take it to be kind of the integration uh, and interlinking of the world and the world is certainly becoming less um, uh, interlinked and there's a sense that you know if I just I, uh, there's a sense that that diplomacy between nations is breaking down at the same time that trade between nations is beginning to, uh, to to fracture as well and this sort of conjures up well which road are we going to go down um, and we've been there before because in the in the 19th century up to about 1912 Britain, the other Anglo-Saxon country, uh, led the first wave of globalization uh, through the British Navy, trade routes, etc. Um, and in many ways, if you just look at it on a ratio-by-ratio ratio basis, uh, the world was more globalized then uh, than it was now. I've got a great quote from J.M. Keynes uh, where he, he describes it. You can almost sort of see him perched in his bed on an iPad, kind of buying and selling commodities. Um, and there were some countries like Argentina that was, that was intensively 
globalized in terms of its trade, in terms of the size of its stock market, uh, that subsequently uh, collapsed. Um, and in 1912, globalization collapsed. It collapsed in a trade war and a breakdown of uh, diplomacy. So that's the bad example that people hold up. And people tell us that Donald Trump is the new Herbert Hoover. He's going to spark a trade war. And then we'll all be, be off to war. Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure. I think some people have learned the lessons uh, of history. I think some institutions today uh, are perhaps stronger uh, than they were and are more present today than perhaps they were a uh, hundred or so years ago. Uh, but we are manifestly leaving globalization behind. Um, and I think one of the problems in the public dialogue is that the so-called uh, liberal democratic politicians, uh, the so-called elites, uh, I think cognitively don't want to give it up. Okay, I think there's still a lot of people in denial that globalization is over. Um, and that denial, I think, will be painfully uh, broken down. Um, so I think globalization is over. I think we're going into a multipolar uh, world. And that's a world really dominated not by one big country and one in interconnected kind of uh, global economy, uh, but of maybe three or four different regions, China-centric Asia, Europe, uh, the States, perhaps the area between Dubai and India as well. And what defines them is that not only are they big and powerful, but they do things increasingly differently. If you look at the internet, five or ten years ago, the internet was effectively global. Now some countries have closed off the internet, Russia, China. Other parts of the world like Europe don't have the internet in the, in the sense that they don't have big internet companies, but they are aggressively regulating the internet. Uh, and then the US has got all the sort of the hegemons of the, the internet in terms of the, uh, the tech sector. So things are becoming increasingly different. Um, and this is already beginning to produce uh, strains. Um, and as I said, people find this uh, vexing, they find it uh, taxing. And I, I think in the next maybe four or five years, in the, in the sense of this paradigm shift, um, we go through a period that is noisy, uh, that is confusing. Um, it's a bit like being an adolescent. You're kind of growing up and you're finding your, uh, your way. You're not kind of fully formed yet. Um, so it's a, in that sense, it, it's, a, it's a difficult period. And what I've done in the book to try and put a, a roadmap as to where we might go is set out some examples and some ideas in the, in the realms of economics, politics, geopolitics. Um, many of them, I think, rest on examples in history. Uh, if you read the book, you get a sense that I, I like history a lot, and I think history has uh, a lot to teach us for at least two reasons. Um, one is that historically people have uh, been confronted by similar challenges, maybe in, in slightly different forms. Uh, and then the second one, which people in financial markets will know, is that people tend to repeat the mistakes of history. Um, you can probably make lots of money out of that, I'm not, not sure, but uh, I see it all, all the time. Um, and I want to start with, uh, with politics. Um, and I want to start with the group whose name has kind of lent itself to the book, which are the, the levelers. Um, one of the periods of history I find absolutely fascinating is not so much the 19th century, but is the middle of the 17th century. So around about sort of 1648, the Thirty Years' War, uh, had just finished. It w wiped out, for example, a third of the German population. Europe was in chaos, and the Thirty Years' War effectively gave us the nation state. 
and self-determination by, by nations. And that is still with us. Uh, in Britain at the time, which is kind of cut off from the Thirty Years' War, uh, King Charles had been captured by Cromwell and the New Model Army. And for many people, given they thought the king was a tyrant, this, this opened up something unprecedented. They said we might actually have a, a proper parliamentary democracy. And they took themselves down to, uh, to Putney. And if you go down to Putney, cross the bridge, and it's very noisy, there's loads of traffic, there is a church there called St. Mary's Church. And that's kind of the spot where you had the, uh, the Putney debates, where the ordinary rank and file of Cromwell's army uh, discussed the, the possibilities for the future and discussed what a, 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 a sort of a democratic or a constitutionally democratic Britain might look like. Uh, and the chief group amongst them were called the, the Levellers. And these were ordinary uh, people. They were concentrated in London. Uh, many of them, I think, would have been active uh, in, in this area. Uh, what is remarkable about them is that there were almost as many women Levellers as there were men Levellers. Uh, the women levellers at one stage took a petition to Parliament and they were told, go home and wash your dishes, to which their response was, we have no dishes left to wash. Uh, so it was a very interesting movement. And a bit like today's social media, they wrote pamphlets to, to spread their message. I find them interesting for two reasons. One is that they, uh, in response to the possibility of democracy, they actually wrote down what they wanted from this democracy in very tangible uh, form, uh, and they called it the agreements of the people. So they said, you know, we want things like term limits, we want no corruption, we want kind of uh, everyone to be treated alike in terms of the uh, the debt courts. Uh, and if you read it today, it makes it should make sense to to people today. And I like it because uh, it is the opposite reaction to what we're seeing around the world today. My impression of what we see around the world today is is anger, uh, confusion. Uh, tweeting and I think it's a very good model that people should just study uh, and stop uh, and think and it's a sort of antidote to uh, I wouldn't say to populism because I think there's a lot of serious things underlying that that, that need to be uh, taken into account but it's a model for how you can have a more constructive political debate the second thing about the levelers that is interesting is that they were a complete failure and I find it interesting because so there are so many people who are interested in politics uh, and reform and uh, I've seen and heard so many people who propose means of reforming politics who want to have new parties and new ideas and unfortunately the majority of them fail. In some dramatic cases uh, the Arab Spring unfortunately and sadly was a, a failure across many countries because the, the people who, who, who led that were uh, outmaneuvered by the grandees or the, the rulers at the time. So I think there's something in the Leveller's story for people who are interested in politics uh, to take on uh, and to learn from them and to be a little bit more uh, streetwise uh, in terms of the, the statecraft uh, uh, in, in terms of what they're doing. So one of the first proposals in the book is that we have an agreement for the people of, for 2024, uh, where we all you know, write down what do we want uh, from politics. We want the politicians to stop tweeting and to focus on long-term uh, uh, political issues. We want certain measures of certain checks on things like inequality, etc. Um, something I'd love to do if I can get my, my hands around sort of the, the internet and social media is kind of launch a project like this on, uh, on social media. 
In politics, uh, I also think we're at a, a point in history where uh, political entrepreneurship uh, is, uh, is really beginning to break out. Uh, I know a couple of people in the audience who are entrepreneurs in the areas of tech uh, and finance. Uh, but more and more across a whole range of countries, there are people who are entrepreneurs in politics. The rate of uh, startups uh, in, in politics, particularly in Europe, uh, has never been uh, as high. And that, that, I think, is encouraging. At the same time, in a whole range of countries, uh, the, the death and demise of incumbent parties uh, is also beginning to accelerate. Just take last month's uh, European elections in France. The two main parties who have survived for such a long time, the, the Socialists and the Republicans, uh, dead. Okay? Same for the Social Democrats uh, in, in Germany. Um, I would not be surprised that, uh, given the, the tensions involved in Brexit, uh, that some stage that soon the Tory party uh, splits and we begin to get maybe splits in other parties and, and the centre of politics in the UK uh, becomes uh, reformed. Uh, and I think there's, there's a whole range of other uh, reasons for this. One is that political parties who've had strong ideologies are now offside because those ideologies relate to things that were of the 20th century. A uh, whole debate, uh, the, the parts of the socialist debate, parts of the market debate, uh, and are being superseded by, by events. Secondly, they were anchored around historic individuals who are now, in many cases, forgotten. Uh, and thirdly, there are now so many new political issues. Mental health is becoming a big issue in the whole healthcare sphere. Uh, cybersecurity, the internet, what happens between people uh, and technology uh, and data. Uh, so one of the things I've done in the book is to sort of uh, make up new political parties uh, of, the, uh, of the future. Uh, and some of these, I think, will be pan-country. One of the things that's always surprised me about the Green Movement is why uh, Green parties across countries haven't joined up and, and coordinated better across countries uh, and regions. Uh, and I think we will see that very, very soon. Um, I sort of, on a wet Sunday afternoon, came up with the idea of a, a governance party, a party where the, the people wanted to use technology uh, to monitor everything, to outlaw corruption, use blockchain and everything. Uh, and then I showed it to someone, he said, oh yeah, there's a guy in Romania doing that. So some of it is actually beginning to, uh, to happen, and I hope it will give you an idea uh, as to how uh, party politics can change uh, and can change uh, radically. And just to move on to some of the other fields, um, you know, I'm not sure I would be a, a politician these days. Uh, whenever I do uh, smaller events uh, than this, uh, the conversation always turns to politics. You know, the world is such a bad place, it's so chaotic, etc. Um, and usually sensible, successful people spend a lot of time berating uh, public life and the body politic. And, I, and then I say, well, right, show of hands, uh, who's going to be a politician? And the sort of the heads go down, the hands go in the, in the pockets. Um, so there is, a, I think, a problem in public life in terms of getting new people into public life. One of, the, one of those reasons, I suspect, is that some of the challenges uh, ahead are, are actually quite daunting. And I think for us to get through this paradigm shift to a sort of better place in the world, we have to surmount uh, a couple of, of really quite sizable 
uh, economic and financial uh, challenges. One of them is indebtedness. Uh, the second one, which is related, is the, the power uh, and the size of, of central banks. So today, uh, and again with the, the memory of the global financial crisis, uh, today world debt to GDP uh, is as high as it was uh, after the Second World War. And then you've got to go back to the Napoleonic Wars 204 years ago to find a time when the world had more uh, debt. Um, so that, that, that's quite daunting. And debt in recent years has been taken on by emerging countries, by US corporates, some European states are still indebted. And you think of all the ways out of indebtedness, higher growth, unlikely, higher inflation, uh, unlikely. Um, and it points to the fact that the world is going to be burdened with this debt for some time until uh, it is resolved in a very, very dramatic way. One of the sort of the quirks I came up with in the book is that we may have a rerun of the 1924 uh, debt conference after the first, the, the first World War. And that was a time when uh, Britain and France forgave Germany its debt. And then they turned to America and said, you know, will you forgive us, forgive us uh, our debt? Uh, and the, uh, the US did. Uh, and I suspect that only a, a dram either a dramatic financial crisis or a wholesale and dramatic kind of restructuring of debt at a strategic level uh, will lift, effectively lift sort of the handbrake on the, the world economy. If you look at the economies where growth is very slow, they tend to be the most uh, indebted countries or the countries that historically have been the most indebted uh, over the last five or ten years. And one of the pieces in this puzzle uh, are the, uh, the central banks. When I was a student, uh, my understanding of central banks is that they were creatures that raised interest rates and did it often. Okay, Paul Volcker, uh, even uh, Alan Greenspan. Poor old Mario Draghi, who is uh, one of my heroes, and I think many people in Europe uh, have him as a, as a hero, uh, he's never raised interest rates, you know? Um, it's a bit like being sent off to, to war for eight years and not being able to, to fire a bullet. Um, and that, that, in a way, tells you how strange and dysfunctional the, the world is. It also tells you the extent to which central banks have gone uh, to suppress many of the problems in the world. Um, my, my first job was uh, working as a lecturer for Ben Bernanke, um, who I think is, is a, a complete gentleman, a highly, you know, the, the, the peer of all his economists. And he left Princeton, he went to the Fed. And his job, initial job at the Fed, was to be sort of the intellectual of the Fed. And he initially, around about 2002, came up with all these crazy ideas. And he wrote one paper where he said, well, you know, if the U.S. is confronted by um, a Japan-style meltdown, we'll do nine things. And I remember at the time, uh, he kind of admitting to people, well, you know, it'll never happen, we'll never do it. Well, he did eight of the nine things, okay? And then his successors just kept on going. And quantitative easing, which was the buying of debt, most of it government debt to push down rates, uh, I think initially was very successful because it healed, um, it healed kind of broken parts of markets that allowed banks and other companies to, to refinance. But I compare it to... Uh, a doctor giving a patient morphine. So if you're a doctor in the accident and emergency uh, uh, department of a hospital and various people come in, one's got a broken leg, the other's got cancer, the other's mad, the other one's got a, had a heart attack, 
you can give them all morphine for a couple of days to suppress uh, the pain, but you won't cure them. And I think this is the problem with you know, seven or eight years of, of QE. It's sort of seven or eight years of sugar or, or drugs or morphine, whatever way you want to put it. Um, and that has massively distorted financial markets. 20% of bonds uh, today trade at uh, negative yields. The markets are psychologically totally captured by, by central banks. Uh, and what is now beginning to happen is that this kind of easy policy is permitting politicians to do reckless things in reckless ways. Uh, Donald Trump two days ago called the Fed uh, a stubborn child. He said they don't have a clue what they're doing. Um, and in other countries, for example, the, the Italian government would be much, much less brave uh, if the ECB wasn't sort of hoovering up uh, Italian government debt. So the point here, and again, I think important in the context of the LSE, is that the whole political economy of the world has been distorted. Central banks have become much bigger, much more powerful, and they've encroached into the space of politicians. So things that would normally end up on the in-tray of politicians and that they would have to deal with, uh, central banks take that away with, uh, with morphine. And imagine uh, how different Brexit would be if the Bank of England hadn't been uh, as vigilant. And I say vigilant because I think they were perhaps the only institution who were prepared uh, for the different possibilities and consequences of Brexit. Uh, but if a week after Brexit they, they hadn't cut rates and continued to do uh, QE, I think the economic consequences uh, would have been more uh, acute and perhaps we would have had some form uh, of Brexit closure uh, already. So one of the proposals in the book is that central bankers step back. They agree not to use QE uh, in anything but uh, emergency circumstances. I'm not sure this is going to happen because it's very hard uh, once you give people power, it's very hard for them to uh, relinquish it, particularly such uh, enormous uh, financial power. And there are lessons in this for other countries like China, uh, which potentially may be confronted by uh, its own debt crisis or its own period of, of economic weakness into the, into the future. So these are two roadblocks that need to be cleared before we get back on track to uh, a world that can grow of its own volition. Uh, and then when it does begin to grow of its own volition, uh, you need to have politicians who are ready and willing to uh, rediscover uh, the secrets of uh, long-term economic growth. And in the book, I think it's chapter six, I introduce a sort of fictional character called uh, Catherine Chidley. And she is my fictional kind of finance minister or fictional uh, treasury secretary. And someone who arrives in the Treasury, and I kind of wrap this a bit in Yes Minister. If, I'm, I'm, if you haven't seen Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister, get onto YouTube uh, and, and see it, because not only is it, is it uh, highly amusing, but it's also an education uh, in, uh, in politics, where the sort of the mandarins and the civil servants uh, uh, subtly and uh, amusingly take over the, uh, the politicians. Catherine Chitley was uh, a real person. Uh, she was a real person at the time of the, the levelers. Uh, she was a remarkable woman whose kind of life has is, is, is gone un, un, unnoticed. She had seven children. Uh, she was a leading intellectual, wrote several books. She ran a business, etc. So someone, I think, worth resurrecting from history. So in, in the book, she goes through uh, the different sort of phases of economic policy. 
And she goes through all the easy ones first, you know, should we build infrastructure, should we call other countries weak, and should we do protectionism, which is what's happening now. Uh, and through the story, she begins to discover that, well, if you want to actually increase the trend rate of economic growth, which is what's really important for people's lives, then you've got to focus on things that I call intangible infrastructure, uh, things like institutions, the rule of law, uh, education, strong focus on productivity, many of which actually Britain is good at but seem to have been lost a bit in the whole debate on, uh, on Brexit. Um, and we're beginning, I think, what, what's interesting about the states is that in the Democratic uh, Party election, we're beginning to see some of these things teased out in a slightly maybe incoherent uh, way. You know, there's a focus back on, on um, things like education. Uh, there is a tendency, I think, to point to U.S. corporates and say, well, you know, we'll have some of their profits, please, either by increasing their costs, their tax, etc. And I think one of the really big political battles of the next 10 years will be politicians trying to, to raid corporate profits for the sake of households. And if you look, for example, at a graph of corporate profits to GDP, which is at an all-time high in the States, relative to wages to GDP, you'll see why, because one is super low, the other is, is super high. Um, so I, I would very carefully watch where the Democratic uh, Party debate goes in terms of not just the focus on, on profits, but also in terms of the, uh, the economic uh, model of the, uh, of the future. Uh, and as all of this begins to happen, uh, the rest of the world begins to, to change. And I'll just jump now quickly to, uh, to geopolitics, uh, because the world has been relatively stable for the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, remarkable things have happened. No two democracies have uh, gone to, uh, to war. But in this multipolar world, as that begins to evolve, a whole range of different frictions uh, are going to emerge. And we're already seeing, thanks to the president, people like Mike Pence. Uh, and in fact, Mike Pence was supposed to have uh, a headline speech on China on Monday, which was uh, stopped by the president, so it must have been really uh, aggressive and harsh. If you read the speech he gave uh, on China back in October, I mean, it was uh, schoolboy stuff, but uh, at the same time, uh, you know, quite, uh, quite biting and I think also off the, uh, off the mark. Um, so I think we're going towards this situation where you have these three or four big poles. They take very, very different ways uh, of approaching economics, technology, uh, democracy. And then around them, lots of things will happen. The kind of the mid-sized countries of the world are going to find it hard to fit in. So if you're Russia, the UK, Australia, Japan, you don't quite know where you fit. Uh, the UK is divorcing from the EU, still not certain of its, of its relations with the, with the US. And I think we'll really have to work very hard on this template of global Britain to kind of craft uh, its place in the world. And the same for many of the other countries. We're also seeing lots of new coalitions uh, emerge. So two I'll mention, because I think they will be pertinent in the future, certainly from a, a geopolitical point of view. One is the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is China, Pakistan, um, Iran, uh, and Russia. So if you're in London or Washington, they're the bad guys. But, you know, if you go to Moscow, you get a very, very different uh, view. Whenever I go to Moscow, I'm always terrified 
by the fact that Russians and Americans can have such different views on the same thing and the, the potential that makes for, for misunderstandings is, is, uh, is, is critical. Uh, so that's kind of one gang. And another, another gang of the future is the Quad. And the Quad is a group made up of Australia, uh, Japan, India and the US uh, who are all beginning to reinforce each other militarily, who are all beginning to uh, buy and sell arms. I mean, Japan, for a, a so-called pacifist country, um, is going to buy 105, uh, I think, stealth fighters from the, uh, the US. They've got amazing missile technology, they've got nuclear power, etc. So you can kind of guess where, where that goes. Um, a slightly more optimistic and new coalition, and one I, I, I'm kind of involved in a bit uh, in, in Europe, is what's called the Hanseatic League 2.0. And that's a coalition of small countries in Europe. Um, and that is interesting because they're beginning to gang up together uh, against the bigger countries like France and Germany uh, and, and, and sort of have a, a coalition uh, together so they have more power. Uh, and also they have many of these small countries, and I write a lot about this in the book because I think they are the model for this kind of organic economic growth uh, model of the future, the Switzerland's, the Sweden's, the New Zealand's. Um, they, they, they have that critical model, and I think in Europe those countries uh, are beginning to push an agenda of uh, you know, higher growth uh, and lower debt, which is in stark contrast to the likes of uh, Italy and maybe, uh, maybe even France. So there are some, uh, I think, new and hopeful coalitions beginning to emerge. Uh, the other thing I think geopolitically that's interesting is what happens to the institutions of the, uh, the 20th century, the UN, the World Trade Organization, etc. Uh, I see many of them being uh, defunct. Many of them have achieved what they are partially achieved what they were set up to do so. Many of them belong in different places. I think the World Bank should be located in, uh, in Africa, not in Washington. So the people who run it can actually live and see uh, the problems that the really the last sort of poor continent uh, of the world uh, suffers. Uh, and then others like the World Trade Organization have allowed themselves to become uh, irrelevant in the context of the whole trade uh, debate. Others like the OECD have not because they've reinvented themselves as sort of the brain trust of the, uh, the G20. So the sort of the, the tables and chairs, the architecture of uh, international diplomacy uh, and geopolitics is going to change and going to change uh, dramatically. And there's a couple of chapters on that in the book. In the last, and I'm at the last chapter of the book now, you'll be glad to, uh, glad to hear. Um, in the last chapter of the book, I, I resurrect uh, someone else, uh, Alexander Hamilton. And he is, he is my favorite character from history. Um, he had a sort of unusual life. He is famous today because of the uh, the musical. Uh, if you have time over the summer and you want to read more, read Ron Chernow's book on uh, Alexander Hamilton. It's a, a brilliant, uh, brilliant book. It's about that thick, so you, you, you need it three weeks at the, uh, at the beach. Uh, but he was a remarkable guy because he built everything, well, he built almost everything uh, that has made America great. Okay, so he made the currency, he made the central bank, he made uh, the Navy, the Coast Guard, etc. Um, and if you read the kind of things that he was doing, when, when America started to have uh, monetary, a single, a single money, and uh, you read the things he had to do, he had to go around from, I think, Virginia to New York with, with the army, with the militia, to try and enforce the debts. 
it puts the, the Greek crisis uh, in context in terms of that being a sort of a, uh, an early uh, monetary system. So I think he's a remarkable guy. And I think he is someone who is shorthand for building uh, the kind of institutional infrastructure we need in the future. So I bring him back to life in the last uh, chapter. Uh, and I sit him down and I sort of say, well, you know, if you were sent to China, to Europe, uh, to the States, what would you do uh, today? So, for example, for China, I think he would advise China to develop its, uh, its soft power, its diplomacy, uh, and its kind of soft reach across nations. Uh, he would also say to China that, uh, you know, the next 10, 20 years economically will not be as strong as the last 30. They, they can't be, and imbalances are growing. And to counteract that, you can do it in different ways. You can have uh, a, a sort of a system of control uh, and uh, discipline. And I think one of the arguments that's going to emerge in terms of international politics is how countries should be run. I'll just make a little uh, diversion, because if you look at Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong, there's a couple of people here from, from Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong, for me, is it's a great place. It is so vibrant, but it is fast becoming the test case for, uh, you know, two systems. And in the book, uh, I describe these two systems as the leveler system, which is effectively uh, a country run as an open society and open economy. That's a bit idealized because I think many, the challenge is that many Western countries are going away from that. America is going away from the leveler system. It's going away from what Karl Popper called the open society. Uh, many of the Eastern European countries uh, that Popper and Soros, all these people, helped to open up are going against the open society, sadly, in, in my view. So kind of the, the open society Western model is being checked and is being challenged. Uh, the alternative to that is the Leviathan system. Some of you will have heard of Thomas Hobbes. And interestingly enough, Thomas Hobbes was uh, alive at the time of the levers. He wrote his book, uh, Leviathan, uh, one or two years after, effectively after the levelers, two years uh, after the Treaty of uh, Westphalia. And that was another response to kind of systems of government. He said, well, the world is a chaotic, disordered place, so what you need to do is surrender your liberty to a higher force, the Leviathan. And he probably had a mixture of Cromwell and the king in mind. Uh, and, and the Leviathan will guarantee you economic uh, stability. Um, and that, in my view, and I, and I apologize if I get this wrong, but that, of my view, is, is the model uh, that is working in China, that there is a degree of economic uh, growth, economic improvement, uh, in return for a, a sort of a sacrifice of uh, liberty. And it's a model, I think, that other countries, or maybe even their leaders, or strong men or strong women, uh, are beginning to tout uh, as an attractive model. And we see these two systems, Leviathan system, leveler system, uh, being contested uh, in Hong Kong. And I think Hong Kong will be one of the, the sort of the crucibles of the, uh, the 21st century. So Hamilton would have had a lot to, uh, to say about that. Um, when he turns himself to the US, uh, I think one of the things he would say to the US is that if you want to remain powerful, you've got to own and set and make the rules and standards uh, of the future. 
So there's a whole range of new technologies that are beginning to emerge in the world. Uh, gene editing, uh, Facebook is launching a cryptocurrency, uh, we have cyber wars. And what's interesting about all these technologies is not so much the technology themselves, but the fact that they don't really have philosophical, well-developed philosophical or legal frameworks, and they don't have uh, boundaries and laws. Um, and whoever takes the lead in setting those laws, it could be the US, it could be China, it could be Europe, uh, will be the person, will be the country or the people who will uh, shape uh, our future for bad uh, or for worse. Uh, and then finally, uh, before we, we come to, to questions, uh, Hamilton would look at Europe and I think he would say two things. Um, one, the Euro system uh, needs to be uh, needs to be uh, to be totally uh, remade. Uh, there was a famous uh, economist who's given his name to the Phillips curve, who I think was at the uh, the LSC, and he, um, in order to explain economics to members of the cabinet, he, Bill Phillips built this kind of uh, machine, and I think th there was one, and there may still be one in the LSC. He built this huge big machine of kind of pulleys and wheels and stuff and water would flow through it and he wanted to show to the parliament, uh, to the, the cabinet at the time, this is in the 50s and 60s, how the economy works. So if you push the button to do a fiscal stimulus, water would spurt up and it would push another button, etc. and you'd see the effect. Um, and as a kind of a, a visual, an intuitive model, it was actually very, very effective. And I think if you look at the Eurozone from that point of view, from the point of view of kind of almost plumbing, uh, it has lots of leakages. Some pipes are too big, some are too small, um, uh, and it's a project that needs to be, to be remade. Um, and that is one of the big challenges uh, for Europe uh, in the future. The other challenge is uh, to get Europeans back in touch with, uh, with what the EU means for them. So, you know, our parents' generation, for them, Europe was and the EU project was the absence of war between European uh, countries and to that end it was very very successful but I find if I get a group of you know a Portuguese uh, a Lithuanian an Irish person a German in a room and I say right what do we all have in common uh, we might well find more differences than similarities um, and I think in whatever way it happens the EU uh, or someone outside the EU needs to kind of crystallize the, the messages and the values of what the EU means to its citizens. In the same way, if you've got a bunch of Americans in a room, you know, there might be some Democrats, there might be some Republicans or, or Trump supporters, but they're all anchored by the same, I think, set of, uh, of values, and I'm sure Hamilton would have a lot to, to say about that. Um, I'm just looking at some of your, your watches, and I know time is, is running on, and I, I could probably keep on uh, talking for a, a long time, but I won't. Um, so I hope I've given you a sort of a tour uh, through the book um, and maybe a slightly different avenue away from kind of what's Boris drinking tonight or who's, what's Trump, uh, who's Trump insulting in his latest uh, tweet. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of sick to death of the number of times people come up to me and say, we live in interesting times, but we, we do, and there's lots to, uh, to debate. So I, I'll stop there, and Tom, we'll, we'll maybe move to, to questions. Okay, so we'll, we'll open the floor up for, 
for questions now. Um, we've got stewards appearing with, with, with mics for people who want to ask questions. Uh, maybe we'll take questions in, in, in batches of, uh, of three. Um, so would we take the, the gentleman in the, in the purple top there to get us started? Okay, I'm a professor, a visiting professor here. And uh, <clears throat> yes, as you said, the glob globalization is rejected in a way. And uh, yeah, the world seems changed to a, to a way we couldn't understand. The free world leader now give up the free trade policies. And uh, <clears throat> yes, the leader, the chair, the famous professor here, and um, and the American Study Center, Peter, even offered a new concept called American Abdication. And on the other hand, in the developing world number one, China, is stick to the free trade policy. A few days ago, the former Foreign Secretary Miliband even said that we should rely on China to rebuild a rule-based world. The G G20 summit is going to begin in a few hours. And during the G20, there are G2. Would you like to give the G2 leaders some suggestions to make the world a little better than now? Thank you. Okay, good question. Who else? So we've got a gentleman in the blue shirt there and then the lady in the black top a couple of rows further down. Okay, uh, so it seems to me one of the wild cards is, the, is climate change, or rather the political response to climate change. So it seems to be, as somebody who's been watching it for a while, it seems to be become far more politically, uh, it's taking a certain line politically as well as just used to be a technical, how do I fix this? But it's, I think it is one of the big wild cards that could play across all these yep. things. Hello, thank you for your wonderful talk. I have a question about your definition of globalization, since that's our thing. But uh, and also, I think you mentioned one sentence that uh, globalization is rejected or denial, and is we are moving towards this multipolar uh, geopolitical situation. But so, is this uh, the assumption behind is uh, multipolar is a bit exclusive with globalization, or how do you see the rise of regionalism or the rise of bilateralism? Are they ex ex exclusive with globalization, in your opinion? Thank you. Could God, yes. Um, <laughs> give you enough to get started on. Yeah, I think um, I, I'll actually start with a question on, on climate change because I, I think. Um, one of the dangers in this is that we, 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 uh, we get slightly bogged down certainly in the personalities of politics. Um, we also get slightly mesmerized by the issues themselves, and we don't think about the decision-making. And I think the science of decision-making is an emerging field. And so in the book, I've, I've written about climate change, but I'm, I, I, I've made a sort of mea culpa that I... I I can't speak with any kind of authority on it because I'm, I, you know, my knowledge of the science, etc., is, is uh, you know, it's just like everyone else's, I guess. But the decision making behind that, I think, is important. And um, I, I find, you know, when I point to my chart of sort of world debt rising, it's just the same. It's got the same profile as the as world temperatures to their their long term average. And I think some of the same 
behavioral traits are behind those. Uh, denial, lack of an incentive uh, to tackle a big problem straight away and take all of the, the polit political cost for that. Um, so one of the things I, I've come up with in the book is, is that climate change should actually, climate change policy may actually be better being made by between cities, big cities of the world than uh, big countries because cities first of all tend to be more progressive people are more attuned in cities to the, the cost of climate change uh, and in many countries the big cities account for about 70% of the, the various emissions so I, I think when confronted by the whole range of problems you know trying to define the locus and, and the, the means of decision making is, is, is quite important that maybe takes us to the uh, the, the, the really good question on the, the G2 or the G20. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what I would say to uh, the two leaders. Um, I, in the book, I, I bring up a character called uh, Robert Hart, who was uh, an Irishman who uh, was in the, I think, around about sort of 1860, he was in the British diplomatic service, and he became, he went to Hong Kong and China and he uh, very soon he, he, his career progressed and he, he, he became uh, the head of China's customs and trade system so he was responsible for building out a lot of the ports um, and what distinguished him and there's, there, there's a road um, behind the Peninsula Hotel in Hong Kong called Hart Road and there was one in Beijing as well um, was the way he, he, he acted towards the Chinese and they called him Our Heart uh, because he treated them with respect um, and on a, on a level basis at a time of kind of, you know, peak, peak empire. So I, I think there is a lack of respect in, in global uh, democracy, or global diplomacy. Um, one thing a, a friend and I have, have suggested to the G20 is that you have a, a G20 with a small G, a G20 for the small countries, because they are better at diplomacy, because they have to be, they're less arrogant, and also they are the canaries in the coal mine of the world economy because they see changes in the world economy. Uh, so you see a change in the world economy in Singapore before you see it in, in China. So that would be my, my suggestion. On globalization and regionalization, um, I, I think this kind of, so, so you know, I, I think globalization is just the interlinking and intertwining of so many different forces, ideas, trade, etc. So it's like a big ball of string or you know, the wiring of a, of, a, of a machine, and that wiring is now being pulled out by various actors. Um, so I think it's going to take some time, 10 or 15 years, before this kind of new uh, system settles, and it will produce lots of, lots of, of, of tensions along the way. Okay, um, another round of questions. So we've got the gentleman in the blue shirt at the back there, and then we had the gentleman in green here, and then also in the uh, stripy polo shirt on the back right. Yeah. Hi, uh, Rod Dubitsky. Um, I, I also worked at Credit Suisse around the time you were. I was head of asset back security, so covered the subprime securities during that era. I'm not sure we ever met while I was there, but um, uh, I, a couple of questions. One is the future of money. Uh, it wasn't only in the 70s when the U.S. got off the gold standard and therefore the world. So the, the idea of, uh, of fiat currency not backed by hard commodity 
uh, is, is a relatively recent phenomenon. Do you see in the next 20 years or so any perils to the idea of fiat currency, whether it's Bitcoin, Libra, or any other alternatives? And then uh, on your comments on the EU, I was particularly impressed with the EU's negotiation on Brexit. They showed greater unity, preparation, technical skills. They frankly ran circles around the British team, and I think only Theresa May would be able to disagree with me. So I would like to comment on your view of e having hasn't their role in negotiating Brexit maybe given you a bit more confidence in the EU as a political entity? It, Thank it you. does. I mean, I, I'm personally uh, very pro-European. I was in Dublin yesterday and we, we were discussing this and um, I, I think that there are very few winners in, in Brexit. Um, Michel Barnier is one of them. Um, being biased, I think Irish diplomacy is, is another one. I, I think the US, if it thinks it can have a trade war with Europe, is really under, underestimating Europe because there, there are certain facets of the EU that are highly centralized and highly organized and very, very competent and trade is, is one of them. Um, and on that, with an eye on the next uh, battle, uh, I, I, I'm really puzzled that people are getting so excited about a Boris Johnson premiership um, because you know, he, he will run into the same realities that Theresa May run into and there was, a, there was a large degree of forbearance and kindness shown to her um, and I can tell you that what the media picks up, does, sorry, does not pick up here is the level of disgust in places like Paris and, and even Dublin uh, for the prospect of a Boris Johnson uh, premiership given the way he, 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 he's behaved, given the way he's behaved as, as foreign secretary etc. So the, the goodwill is zero and I was, I was not that pessimistic on Brexit for the last two years, but now I am. And I think the, the economic cost can, can, be, can be quite big in the next few, few months. Um, so uh, to go back to the, the currencies, um, I, I think that uh, there is a huge incentive for central banks uh, to outlaw uh, cryptocurrencies, and they're doing it already. I mean, m m most uh, cryptocurrencies have been kind of crushed by by central banks. If you look at what, what the Chinese have done to crypto exchanges, um, the one part of the world that has really focused on them is, are, are the Swiss. And again, the Swiss are using this example of kind of getting ahead by setting the standards and giving a very, very big and well-developed kind of sandbox for the, the development of this. Um, I, I'm not a great believer in, um, in cryptocurrencies. I mean, the FBI is the biggest holder of Bitcoin because it's confiscated so much of it from, from various parties. Um, and I, I would not, it, you know, it, it, in terms of the, the ends that it was, it was set up to, uh, to serve, you know, as, as a currency, it, it has failed as a currency. It's a sort of, you know, it's a kind of a electronic racehorse. You can kind of bet on it effectively. It's a speculative asset. Um, I, I think the, re the really big issue would be when central banks themselves issue their own cryptocurrencies and um, when they go into the realm of kind of uh, taking over all of our own bank accounts. So in that, in that kind of world where the central banks are issuing crypto pound, we'll all have accounts at the Bank of England. And if the Bank of England decides that a certain part of the economy is sluggish, they may wake up in the morning and inject crypto pounds into the, the accounts of all households with you know, two parents and two kids for example. But then they will know everything about us. Uh, so it's this kind of almost Leviathan uh, um, uh, all, over, uh, all over again, you know? Yeah. 
thank you. Uh, it was a um, impressive uh, talk. Um, but on the globalization, yes, I, I agree with you. The world is going through a, a period of deglobalization. De but is this process is it, is it simply hiccup for the globalization, or is it more than that? Is it something you think is going to reverse the uh, globalization? Uh, because I feel globalization is based on some very strong forces, secular, strong circular forces of te technology. And uh, that will, in fact, uh, only improve. And I should think, yeah, I mean, I'd like to know from you, I mean, could this be a, this simply a, a temporary phase? The de okay, that's a, good, that's a good question. So, um, I, 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 well, let's take another one. I'll, take, I'll, uh, so there was, yeah, the, in the polo shirt at the back. Um, how significant do you think um, the rise of automation over the next few decades will be in terms of economic and political impact? Um, for example, in sort of aiding the rise of populist parties, maybe as people become disillusioned with um, society as a result of this? Take one more in this um, round. So, yeah, the gentleman in the blue shirt there, over that way. Hi, Michael. Thank you for the talk. Uh, another Credit Suisse alumni. Um, uh, how do we get rid of ourselves from this uh, debt conundrum that we're stuck in? Uh, you know, you mentioned central banks, uh, no growth, uh, no inflation. What exactly is the solution out of this miserable situation we've been living in the last 10 years? Yeah. Okay. So if I, if I just go through those. So um, on globalization and whether it will come back or not, uh, I'll say, say two things. If you are... Uh, a politician, you're someone who wants to blame something. Globalization is great because it has no owner. It's kind of out there in the ether, so you can, you can blame it and nothing will kind of come back and hit you. Um, and many of the things that people uh, throw at globalization are, are, are actually nothing to do with globalization, but they're to do with the ways or the different ways in which different states digest globalization. So there are some states in America who have not dealt with globalization very well. Other countries, small countries, are very alive to it because they have to be, because they, they are vulnerable. So um, I, I think there are many local factors that uh, people, for their own reasons, um, elevate to being global factors. Secondly, there's, there's a really big element, I think, in the story of life cycles, kind of the life cycle of uh, a nation, the rise and fall of nations, if you read Gibbon's book, etc. And there's so many cycles moving parts behind this. So demographics has been going like this, and now it's coming down like that. Uh, and that would mean lower growth, lo lower asset price returns. Uh, debt has been going up like this. And uh, so, and generally, you, you, you add them up, and the sum of kind of the, uh, the more negative factors is rising and the positive ones are, are beginning to, to decline. Uh, so net-net, that means potentially a more challenging, maybe less prosperous uh, future, I think. And, so, and I think that will lead to the unraveling of, glo of globalization until some of these variables, like, like debt, are, uh, are tackled. Um, so to, to debt, I, I mean, I don't know. My, my, um, the, the sort of cynic in me says that uh, these things will go on until they explode. And that's what happened in the, uh, in the financial crisis. Um, 
And that's, that's, that's not a very satisfying, it's a pessimistic answer. Uh, I would like to see different layers of kind of debt restructuring. So one, one example would be Italy. Italy is a huge economy, huge, huge, like third or fourth biggest bond market, 130% debt to GDP. And what I would like to see is that half of that debt is just sort of taken away and securitized. So what I mean by that is that it's set against specific assets, be it forests, motorways, ports in Italy, so that if something goes bad, there's, a, there's an asset there to, to back it. Um, and it's always better to do that in times of kind of financial peace uh, than in a, a crisis. And unfortunately, many, uh, many things have to be done under, under duress. We saw that with the, with the Greek crisis. It was under, under a situation of, of elevated financial stress that you know, Greek, Greek debt was eventually uh, restructured. So I'd, li I'd like to see more of that and more responsibility for debt put back to the people who, who, took it, who, who actually took it on. On, on the question on automation, um, I, I, I th I'll say kind of two things. One, it's not yet clear, I think, in terms of the economic data, that uh, automation has increased productivity. That may see like a, seem like a, a sort of a strange thing to say, but a lot of innovation uh, has been in areas that have not really contributed to productivity. So social media, smartphones, I'm not sure net-net have actually contributed to higher uh, productivity. Um, and I think the countries who will uh, suffer most are kind of the, the sort of the second-tier countries, uh, many of them in, in Asia, who have done very well by um, having big labor forces uh, and where those labor forces are displaced. So one example would be the, um, uh, the sports shoe industry more and more, uh, you know, the likes of ASICs and, and certainly Adidas are moving out of countries like Vietnam. Adidas now have this kind of super factory in um, near Stuttgart where they've got, you know, 20 people working there and the robots are just making the shoes and they're making them much, much faster. So I, I think the, uh, um, I mean, we haven't really talked a lot about, we've talked a lot about the developed world and I think much of what we're seeing in the developed world can actually pass to certain parts of the emerging world as growth begins to slow um, and uh, you know, tension will rise as a, uh, as a result of that. And for me, the, the really crucial barometer for China is not so much trade, but actually is unemployment. And you know, I think the Chinese government are, are absolutely acutely uh, aware, uh, aware of that. Okay, more questions? Yeah, so the gentleman at the front. Yeah. Hi. Um, what's your take on the opinion that globalization is contributing to the fall of the West, not because it's not working, but because it's working so well for Asia and China as direct competitors, and that their strategicness in terms of influence in Africa, where they can shift manufa manufacturing once they become richer, and their their mastery of trade and the raw materials that they possess, yeah. and how do we compete with them? Um, and then the lady at the kind of near the back there. Yep, yeah, you. <laughs> Hi, Michael. Um, I was particularly interested in the fact that you're saying around with all the new technology, technological advances, the person who makes the, the rules and legislation will hold all the future power. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were in terms of 
A lot of the um, all the new coding is based on English language. What the impact of um, having language on um, enforcing the legislation, and whether that's going to make an impact on who holds the future power? So, sorry, just the, the the language of of coding. Sorry, I didn't get. Yep. So, so most coding is based on the English language. Yeah. So whether that was going to have an impact, or how much of an impact that's going to have on enforcing legislation on future technology. Yeah. Okay. And then the gentleman at the very, very back, right at the top. Uh, I'm very worried about the dollar imperialism. You see, the way Trump dictates the terms of the trade with different creating a lot of enemies with India, uh, China, and other countries as such. And the way that he has uh, uh, made life difficult for Iran, where they cannot trade their oil, making exceedingly, you see, world on the age of a big conflict as such. And secondly, I would like you to express your opinion whether the abolition of intellectual property, because that gives rise to a great deal of inequality. You see, this rent-seeking takes place on a giant scale as such. And what we find today that the developed countries have a great deal of inequality and the, uh, you see, zero-hour contract and all that, Uber and other sort of thing. Would you express your opinion on that, please? Yeah, in, in general, um, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, um, you know, zero-hour contract for, for, for lots of reasons, so, social security reasons, productivity, uh, reskilling, etc. Um, I, I want to spend a bit more time on, on the dollar imperialism question because um, there's someone who's far, far more clever than me has answered it, uh, Barry Eichengren, who's a professor, I think, at Stanford. He wrote a paper called Mars and Mercury. And he looked at uh, different visions for the dollar. And what he did is he went back to, in history and looked at empires, you know, the Austrian Empire, Belgian Empire, etc. And he found that whenever an empire begun to weaken, its currency weakened and its, its government debt weakened. Um, because the people you know, did less trade, its friends and allies who were strategic holders of its reserves uh, became less enthusiastic holders of those those reserves. So that's a, a potential avenue for uh, you know for for the dollar and for um, uh, f uh, particularly with the current president on coding in English. It's, a, it's an interesting question. I haven't really really thought of it. Um, I, I think English is so entrenched now as the language of commerce. It, it's probably quite hard to uh, to supplant it. Uh, maybe Spanish is another language that could be could be spoken across parts of the world but it's, it's probably in, quite entrenched but it's not English English it's probably American English these days people speak um, and then on the fall of the West um, I, I think you know the, in the West is is responsible for its own its own faults and there's so many <laughs> bad political uh, decisions that are being acted out now I think we, you know pe people will take take responsibility for that but you, you mentioned Africa and I, I think Africa is a sort of, a, it's, it's um, sad in the case that under globalization, so many other parts of the world have developed. And Africa, to a large extent, has been, been left behind. Um, and there was a great book by a guy called uh, Thomas Pakenham, uh, Lord Longford. 
uh, called the Scramble for Africa. And he was talking about, you know, the Belgians, the French, the Italians scrambling to plunder Africa. And I, I unfortunately see the same thing happening now with the, the big powers today doing, doing the same thing to, to Africa. Okay, um, so, yeah, the gentleman in the, in the middle here, and then also the gentleman behind. Coming from the other side. Thanks for the presentation. It was very uh, edifying. Uh, you were chief investment officer in an international bank, and at the moment, um, a lot of head scratching is going on and amongst the public as to why people are investors are, are placing or buying bond, um, bonds and German bonds, um, which which actually yield a, a negative interest rate, and of course this is tied to the um, um, the yield curve inversion, yeah. um, and if as a believer in the free markets. What does that indicate to you? And the okay. second point being, yeah. uh, is there is there a possibility of, of a pension time bomb? In, in as much as uh, if we look at the demographics, in, in, a, in a country like the UK, where a, a state pension is guaranteed, and along with social care and medical costs, isn't there something down the road which is really quite ominous? Yep. Maybe just pass the mic to just the, just the row, row back behind you. Hi, thank you for the fascinating talk. So currently we mainly discuss about the physical globalization. So I want uh, I want to talk a bit more about the um, internet part. Obviously we know the internet is a fascinating place to unite people together. However, things like fake news and stuff basically have a destruction impact on the globalization. Therefore, I wonder what can we do to regulate the internet and who should be the regulator to ensure, to enhance the positive things on the internet and to reduce the negative impact. Um, kind of one more question in this round. Yeah, uh, the, in the blue shirt near uh, the back there. Thank you. Hi, Michael. Um, you talked about a redefinition of power and it being centred across uh, different parts of the world. So I just want to follow up on that uh, question that came earlier about the scramble for Africa. What do you think, uh, or what are your thoughts on the role of Africa, especially in, you know, in, in, the, context, in the context of um, those power bases? Um, you, you did say that with the scramble, you, you're seeing the same things happen again that happened in the past. I, I, I have read the book that you talked about, Scramble for Africa, um, but what do you think uh, should be the case uh, in, in terms of wh where should Africa be uh, based on the concepts that are talked about in our book? Okay. So on, on Africa, um, you know, the, the most straightforward kind of uh, conversation I've, I've seen on Africa, and one I think that, that sort of shows a line of direction, was uh, Emmanuel Macron was, was in uh, Burkina Faso, and he was talking to a group of students, 
and one of them put up their hand and said, you know, the, the lighting and the heating in the university dorms doesn't work. What are you going to do about it, Mr. President? And he kind of lost his temper, I think rightly. He said, look, you know, I'm not a kind of a colonial imperialist. It's not my job to do it anymore. Um, so I, I think African countries need to think very, very carefully about the links with the outside world, with kind of former... Uh, colonial partners. I think they need to be absolutely uh, aware of um, the kind of bargains are being, that are being struck with um, African countries for, you know, they're, they're being given very little in some quarters for, for kind of va vast amounts of, of um, uh, commodities. Um, and I think, and this is one of the reasons I think you need to locate institutions like the World Bank in Africa. Um, because I think the policy model, Africa and African countries don't really have a good or coherent policy model. Um, and a lot of that has got to do with governance. And I, I think they still need a lot of, a lot of help in that regard. Um, the other thing I think that would be interesting is that population growth and urbanization in Africa is, is, is really accelerating. And it's, it's maybe with, with parts of India, it's the only part of the world that's not yet urbanized. So, so parts of, say, Nigeria still only 20-30% urbanized. Argentina was 90% urbanized 100 years ago. Um, so the planning of all that and the planning of all of the social infrastructure can actually make a huge difference to these countries and that needs to be done uh, very, very carefully. Um, on, on some of the other points, um, uh, the internet... Uh, I mean, you know, th there are parts of the world, China, where the internet is is regulated because everyone uses e-commerce. You get these uh, apocryphal or fable stories that, you know, someone jaywalks and by the time they get to the other side of the street, they've already, a, a fine has been taken out of their, their bank account. Uh, or the 20 million people in China who can't fly because they're on, on no fly list, etc. So there are parts of the world where, it, where it's, um, it's heavily controlled. I think what's more interesting is where it can be, uh, where you can have a kind of an authentic internet. And what will probably happen, and I'm, I'm not a specialist in this area, is that we will all have a, an internet account that's tied to your, your retina ID or your passport or something. Um, and that, that's the one you use as your kind of your, your main, your, for payments and all that kind of stuff. Uh, if you go on an online forum and you say stupid things, people know it's you. Okay, so I, I think we'll probably evolve to something like that, but I'm, I'm not an expert. I do know a little bit more about German bonds. And we, we are in an absurd situation in, in the bond market. So 20% of bonds internationally are at negative yields. Um, one of the interesting things about the fixed income market, it's a market made up largely of specialists and also forced buyers. And you've just got pension money that, that's coming in. So the first answer is there are lots of kind of institutional reasons why the money is coming in. Uh, secondly, if you believe it will still go up, you should buy it. Or if you believe that the currency of that asset is going to go up, it's a good place to, to stick the, the money. Um, if you thought Austrian government bonds were expensive at kind of whatever, 1.5% back in December, they've rallied by 40% since then. So all the, the crazies who are buying negative yielding debt uh, have actually been, been proven right. I think it's a trade that will un unwind, however. Um, but it's also, in Europe in particular, uh, it's emblematic of the fact that there are relatively few hedges or safe assets. 
So when someone is buying something that's highly overvalued, you've got to ask, is there, what, what, what's the other stuff that they've got? Have they got Italian equities and they're just buying one expensive safe thing and, and, and one risky but, but, but cheap asset at the, at the same time? Uh, and I do think we will have an investment time bomb. I think uh, you know, equities are 1% away from an all-time high, bond markets highly overvalued. And I think one of the problems the pension and investment industry will have is dealing with the fact that future returns on core asset classes, they're going to be very low in the future because we've kind of cannibalized, uh, in the last 10 years, we've cannibalized future returns. So what, what I mean by that is the average return on the S&P index in the States for the last 10 years has been 11 12%. Long-term average is 5%. Okay, so there'll be... At some stage, and if you get this war on profits, there'll be a kind of a reversion to mean, which means that the, the average return on the U.S. stock market will be maybe 2% per year for a few years. Great. Um, I think we've got time for maybe one more round of, of, of questions. So if there are any kind of last questions you're burning to, to ask. The gentleman down here, first of all. Thank you, sir, for the interesting talk. Uh, let us assume that uh, at the peak of globalization, <clears throat> the efficiency asymmetry and the information asymmetry is goes off. And at the peak of leveling, the exchange rate asymmetry goes off. In the case of exchange rate asymmetry goes off, whether the world will be a better place to live in or will be a worse place to live in. And then there's the lady at the back, right at the back of the right. Um, hi there, thank you for the talk. Um, I wanted to talk, ask about transnational corporations um, and obviously their original role in driving the effects or the noticeable effects of globalization. And how do you see their influence on that process being um, evolving and changing in the world, if there are any trends that are observed or, or may lead to any, any change of the um, shape of the power and interactions between the transnational organizations, the international organizations and national governments. Um, and secondly, um, you, you, your, the title of your talk um, refers to um, a term after globalization. Um, what do you mean by that? And if there is a definition of the end of globalization in your view? have one more one more question to finish finish us off yeah right right at the front here <coughs> uh, thanks the chat Michael's very interesting um, in terms of power what about the, the corporates which you highlighted earlier have been making all the profit while lots of people's incomes haven't been going anywhere um, and they've been doing all the lobbying of, of um, of developed develop governments pushing all these jobs around the world. Um, I just, yeah, what, what, what's your opinion on that and w will their power ever be diluted? Okay. Um, so I'll maybe start, there were two questions on, on corporates. Uh, so there is a very, was a very well known um, Indian trade economist who's probably taught here Jag Jagdish Bhagwati. I hope I've got his name right. Mm -hmm. He was at Columbia. And he, he described um, 
big multinationals as the B-52s of globalization, which I thought was quite good because, uh, you know, the wave of globalization we, we've seen has been led, it, it's been kind of American in its flavor, and it's been led by Apple and, and, and Microsoft, etc. Um, so it, it's interesting then that these companies are now being, being checked in different ways. So the, the big U.S. tech companies are being regulated and fined in Europe. Uh, their markets in Asia are being cut off. I think the, 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 re the really interesting thing and difficult thing for them is that, is that because of the trade dispute, uh, their supply chains uh, are, are having to change. And many of them are only beginning to, to look at that. Um, and, and that's going to be, I think, a big issue. And I think many of them actually will begin to adopt slightly different corporate personalities, you know, one for the American market, and maybe then another one for, for the sort of the, the outside world. So I think the, the level of flux in, in corporations is going to be quite high. Um, another problem is that many of them have taken on a lot of debt in, in recent years, and that's going to be, be a period of kind of trying to, to unwind that and, and, and sell assets. Um, and then corporate power, I think, is interesting. Many corporates will always insert themselves into centers of power in, in different ways. Um, so in different systems, you know, corporates, big corporates make themselves useful to the Chinese government in the same as they make themselves useful to the American government. In many countries, uh, successful companies um, have links to government, to, to the military. So you look at Israel, uh, all the things that have come out of its kind of military complex. Um, so I think companies will always be powerful. And I, I don't think that in the States, this move to break up the big tech companies, I don't think it's going to happen because in this kind of multipolar battle, these are your assets. You know, these are kind of pillars of the of power. Um, so I, th I think ultimately the state will be quite slow to, to, to break them down. Um, and then there was a, a, another question kind of on gold and the end definition of the end of globalization. I don't have a definition for the end of globalization because it can happen in different ways. Maybe one definition is that gold <coughs> rises by 100%. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, gold, gold tends to do well when short-term rates uh, fall. It also tends to do well when people lose faith in one of the big currencies. And I do think in this kind of process where central banks are, 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 are too active, we're going to see a central banking accident. I think it'll probably happen in, in Japan. Um, and if that happens and people lose faith, then you see massive uh, currency moves and, and, and gold will be, will be a beneficiary. Okay, well, I think we're out of time. So thank you all very much for coming and thank, thank you. you.